Good morning, Bethel Church. Isn't this the best time of year? Am I, am I alone in that? You all think I'm weird. I love it. Everybody comes home from all of your shenanigans. We get into our normal paces, and I get to go moose hunting shortly. It's a great time of year. I love it. Uh, a couple of quick announcements. Um, we had some trees that we cut down here in the lower parking lot, and a woman in our church that needed some firewood, and we had some young men descend upon that this weekend. So uh, Andre Williams and uh, Dylan Congdon, and uh, well, I guess we'll call Scott Hershey a young man too, and uh, Jay Williams, we'll even smuggle you into that one as a young man. And these guys uh, took, took care of that, spent a few hours on their Saturday uh, just to take a, a good resource, some firewood, someone who needs it. So uh, if you see these guys, thank them for their work, and that was uh, appreciated. And then also uh, in your bulletins, I want to draw your attention to something on the right-hand column. You'll see something there. We have renamed uh, kind of an offering that we have had here at the church. I don't mean offering by way of giving money, but something that we provide, a ministry of the church, uh, which is uh, formerly called Fresh Hope, and it's a support group for uh, folks within the community, within the church that have mental, uh, mental health concerns of their own or if they're supporting someone who has some uh, mental health uh, issues. And so this is just a support group. That's what it is. We've changed the name to Look Up. And uh, this is the time of year, and, and it, maybe this will catch you off guard a little bit. Oftentimes we think that it's in the depths of the winter when people are struggling the most. But, but in fact, it's August and September and into October where things begin to surface, especially with those with seasonal effectiveness disorder. So I just want to bring that to your attention so that you would be self-aware uh, as you're watching your, your own emotional uh, state go on and as you watch those around you, that this is just a time to be thoughtful of one another and to... Uh, look out for those who might need some extra encouragement, and this is a support group that's available to you, and the information is there on the bulletin if you want to follow up on that. So with that, if you would pray with me, and we'll dive into our passage this morning. Our Father, we find so many wonderful superlatives in the scriptures about who you are. You are the creator. You are the king. You have a kingdom, and you are our Father. Uh, amazing uh, that uh, we are so fully represented by your enduring love, by your unconditional love. And we see that supremely in the provision of your own Son, the Lamb, who would take away the sins of the world. Uh, so we rejoice in our God and your nature. We are thankful that we are not left alone here on planet earth while we wait for the returning kingdom, but that you indwell us by your Holy Spirit. So we have a triune God who loves sinners and reconciles us to you. We rejoice in that, and we ask God that as we turn to your word now, we would grow to know you more and to love you more for knowing who you are. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so if you open your Bibles to Matthew 19. We're going to finish the second half of chapter 19, starting in verse 16, and then we'll go on into the first half of chapter 20. So we're not going to pay attention to the chapter markings at all. We're going to look at the text and see where the natural divisions are and what ought to be grouped together and, and uh, how to look at that. Now, I kind of hate to begin my message with a winter kind of illustration, but nevertheless, I need to. Uh, so forgive me for this, but we have a phenomenon here in Fairbanks, and if you're 
uh, new to Fairbanks, if this is your first year or you're a visitor this morning or you're visiting, uh, visiting friends or family or something like that, uh, you may not have heard about this. For those of us who have been here for a while, we know it well. But we have something here in Fairbanks called the inversion. It's a horrible thing in some respects if you live where I live on the bottom of things, but we have this weather pattern where when a high pressure sets in, we get an inversion of warm and and cool air so that the cool air settles to the lower parts of the valley and the basin floor here, and the warmer air is actually up in the hills. It's counterintuitive. It's not what you would expect. You know, we kind of go through life thinking the mountains are cold and the valleys are warm. And yet at a horrendous time in the winter, we see this inversion. And those of us who live in the lowlands feel like we're living in the bottom of our own freezer, you know, where the cold settles. So some of you need to be aware of this inversion, and some of us already know it well. And as we look at this passage of Scripture this morning, Jesus points out an inversion in the economy of the kingdom of God, something that is counterintuitive. It kind of goes against the grain of maybe popular thought or what we might bring to uh, this particular topic. Now, as I've already communicated many times uh, in this series through the Gospel of Matthew, the author, Matthew, is not committed to a strict chronological uh, sequence of his material. For the most part, there's a chronology there. There's a story unfolding. But many times he focuses more on a topic or a thematic Uh, emphasis at a particular portion. And we see this this morning. It's not that it's out of chronological sequence, but Matthew intentionally stacks together three little vignettes that work together to make a particular point. And the question that they sort of present us with is this, who may access the kingdom of God? Who has access to the kingdom of God? Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is presented, of course, as a king. This is the emphasis and why we've named the series King Jesus. And he goes through carefully to show his audience, the Jewish audience, particularly how Jesus fits the criteria of king and fits all of the criteria of the messianic qualifications. And he also has a kingdom, something that we've sung about greatly this morning, a kingdom which has already been inaugurated. It's been started, but it will be consummated one day, and we wait for that that longing. Uh, But as we've already observed, the kingdom rule of Jesus wasn't as physical and wasn't as immediate as uh, the Jewish people were expecting. He ushered in a different kind of kingdom, uh, one that we have access to now, but we will see it fully developed at a later point in time. And so here what we see is Jesus kind of teaching uh, this crowd who had different expectations of the kingdom about the inversion of this coming kingdom of God, that it was at odds with and at variance with the kind of the popular thinking of the day. In fact, there was an inversion. There was an inversion of who might access it. And so, again, all three of these incidents that we're looking at this morning stack together to confront us with the question who may access the kingdom of God? And the answer that we find in each section is kind of a surprise. And so, each of these little, these three vignettes really serve as a foil to the popular thinking of the day, to expose where it's wrong. In other words, those who think they're safely in the kingdom, we will find are actually on the outside looking in here. 
and those that we think might not have any chance are in fact readily accepted into the kingdom. And so what we find is that grubby, sunburned children have access to the kingdom of God and are held up as a model for us to be like. The rich are not guaranteed entrance. The religious, the self-righteous, they don't have enough going for them. The hardworking may actually miss it because of their focus on trying to earn. And so these are some of the surprises that we find. We've run into an inversion of the kingdom of God, and it's captured in the repeated line, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Those who think they deserve to be in are likely out, but those who know they're unworthy have the best chance of getting in. And so that's what I want you to see this morning as we go through these. And the big point, the sort of umbrella point over all of this, is the kingdom is gained by those who know they need Jesus. And that's the bullet through and through. So look with me, Matthew 19, verse 13. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. And so the first thing that we see here is that the unworthy are welcome in the kingdom of God. And in order for us to really rightly understand this first uh, section that we're looking at, this first encounter, we have to understand sort of the different status that children had in the first century world than the status they enjoy today in our culture. Uh, Children had a relatively low status in the first century world. And uh, I always try to say this carefully. Of course, they were loved by their family and by their parents and siblings. But generally speaking, they were considered a pretty lowly group. Uh, they were vulnerable. And they represented a, a bit of a liability to the family until they were old enough and strong enough to sort of contribute to the, the family enterprise. Uh, whereas in our, in our culture, children are prized, cherished, photographed protected. They have advocacy groups. Uh, they're spoiled rotten. They get music lessons and comp league and summer camps and sugared cereal, right? You know, <laughs> and this is, this is the world that our kids live in and enjoy. And it is different than what we find in the first century world. So we have to understand that contrast to really get why this is a startling encounter here. Uh, these kids in the first century world kind of had a low status, and, uh, and even though they were loved, it was certainly awkward that they would be brought in to trample upon the respected and honored guest, the teacher. And they were sort of thrust upon Jesus, and the disciples are kind of appalled at what is happening here, embarrassed and ashamed, rebuking the parents who would thrust their kids uh, upon Jesus. And so surprisingly, what we find in this, this first uh, section here, we're probably well aware of it, well accustomed to hearing this story and just thinking of it as a precious moment, right? Oh, Jesus receives the children. It wasn't such a precious moment. It was kind of a scandalous moment. And you've got to get that. Surprisingly, Jesus receives the children and he blessed them. 
Uh, and so it's important to understand here that Jesus' reception of the children goes against the grain of the culture. It was the disciples' reaction that really represents the normal cultural reaction. The fact that Jesus welcomes them is the anomaly. And I feel this morning kind of compelled to make another sort of subtle statement here. Uh, when we think about the children being brought to Jesus, I suspect that for many of you, this is the image that comes to mind. White Jesus, white kids, and even the boy with a mullet, right? <laughs> the yarmulke doesn't even look right because it's not right on this kid on this hair. I mean, if I'm honest with you, this is the picture that we have in our minds. May I show you something that I think is a lot more accurate? This is a modern day picture. These guys. These are four kids from our Meet the Needy sponsorship program in Ethiopia. And I tell you what, their skin color and their age is an awful lot more like the ones that Jesus received to himself. That is a way more accurate picture than what you saw in the first one there. And so really, again, all three of these incidents that we're going to see here this morning, this is just the first of three, but they all serve to show what Jesus is teaching about this inversion in the kingdom of God. Whereas the first century culture said, this group is likely out, not worthy, not, not stable, not, there's, there's not a, a steadiness or a ready acceptance of this group in the culture. Jesus is saying, you bet there is. And until you're like one of these, you have no entrance in the kingdom of God. Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And so then the next thing that we see here, we kind of transition to another little vignette. And here we encounter Jesus as, he, uh, as this young man approaches him. And this man represents someone who is on the kind of other end of the spectrum, right? So the grubby sunburned children who, according to the cultural standards, didn't uh, have acceptance within the kingdom of God or shouldn't be brought to the teacher, surely. Now we have someone on the far other end of the spectrum, a wealthy, young moral man. Now, not all of these particular traits and attributes are told to us in the Gospel of Matthew, but we can kind of gather them in from the four Gospels together, and we can get this particular portrait of a wealthy, young, influential, and moral man. Isn't he annoying? <laughs> right? Too many superlatives to be put upon one guy. Uh, I think he's a particularly irritating character. Nobody should have this many things going for them all at one time. Uh, I bet he's tall and has a full head of hair, a nice tan and other stuff. The text doesn't say that. I'm just imagining a bit here. He is a real person, but he also represents a bit of a caricature or a cultural icon of one who has everything going for him. One who is highly esteemed by this culture. In other words, if anyone is a candidate for the kingdom of God, according to the cultural values, then surely this is the specimen of such a man. And yet, Jesus will foil this as well. Look with me in verse 16. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, 
You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All of these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Peter answered, We have left everything to follow you. I've got to put a little tone on that there, you know. What then will be there for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his righteous throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. And we hear it again there. So again, what we run into here is this particular person and the way that Jesus sort of contradicts some of his thinking and whatnot serves as a foil to the popular thinking of the day. Uh, the disciples at first here are shocked that Jesus would welcome these kids and receive them and bless them and even hold them up as a, a model for those who would enter the kingdom of God. But now he exposes this seemingly well-qualified figure, one who is, as one who is actually far off and unlikely to enter the kingdom of God. And so the point that we get here is the wealthy young moralist might miss it. While the kingdom is offered to children and such like them, the wealthy young moralist may miss it. And the flaw in this man, and thank God we find it, right? You know, we just need to find a bit of a flaw in him. But it's actually shown in the nature of his question. You see three things here that really expose him and his thinking. What good thing must I do to inherit the kingdom? This question is loaded with flaws, layer after layer after layer. And so the way the question is posed here, I think, really betrays the man's theology. And it's a broken theology at that. Uh, and in fact, I think Jesus sort of pokes at his words a little bit to help those who are observing this, to help his disciples and, and any onlookers, and also to help us secondarily as, as modern-day readers to see that there's something wrong, and inherently wrong with his question. Why do you ask me about what is good? Okay, alarm bells should be going off. Jesus is pushing the button a little bit. And so the assumption that the man is making is that the kingdom of God is earned. You earn eternal life. And that it's the result of good things that we do. And that it is an inheritance owed to us by right, by virtue, or by performance. And so again, Jesus exposes this as a, 
uh, faulty gospel. And, uh, and I would tell you this, I think Jesus' reply to the man here is kind of a, not kind of, is a much misunderstood text. Uh, I think Jesus' reply is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, uh, is maybe one way to look at it. In other words, he's not telling us in his interaction that one inherits eternal life by keeping the law, by works, by obedience, or any of these kinds of things. Uh, it's a tongue-in-cheek response. He is, in a sense, kind of adopting the man's thinking, adopting his worldview, adopting his premise for the sake of argument that he might carry it all the way out to its logical conclusion and show the absurdity of it. Uh, in logic, this is, uh, this is something that in the Latin is called reductio ad absurdium. And that's what he's doing. Let's take this out to the logical conclusion. Does it hold water at the end? Or is it absurd? Uh, this could also be known as the long-standing tactic of mothers everywhere, right? Well, Billy has a pony. Yeah, why don't you go live with Billy? You know, if, if we're going to accept your logic that everything Billy has you ought to have, then off you go, right? And this is the kind of thing that I think Jesus is doing. What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? All right. Let's, let's take your premise, let's take your thinking, let's take your value system, and let's run it through its paces. Let's see where we, where we end up. And so that Jesus ends up teaching us by this exercise that salvation is not found in legalism. The road to earning the kingdom of God through perfection is a steep road. Can I say that? And there's only one man who has ever lived the perfect life, and that's Jesus Christ. You can, either, you can try to walk out all of these commandments and walk out all of these steps and give everything away, and you can, you can do all of this and attempt for the perfect life, or you can fall on the perfect life of Jesus Christ, your substitute. And so Jesus is exposing this false gospel. It is no gospel at all. The legalistic attempt to earn eternal life. What I think is a kind of a fascinating wrinkle in this story here is the fact that this legalistic man has an uneasy conscience. Do you see that? He says he's done these things. I mean, if we take him at his word and he is the man he claims to be, even with all of this going for him, he still has an uneasy conscience and he has to come to the teacher and ask the question, what final stroke would it take? What is the one big thing that I have to do? What is that one good act that will clinch my place in the kingdom of God? Having worked so hard to earn his way, he still feels that he is on the outside looking in. The question, even in coming to Jesus, I think betrays the man's secret thoughts. I'm not good enough. I can never do enough to really be worthy. I am still a sinner in heart and deed. Uh, and so again, I think this uneasy conscience of the moralist, of the legalist, and anyone striving for salvation by works, you know, what an example it is to us of, of a failed gospel one that has no gospel at all. Secondly, uh, we get uh, another sort of teaching by Jesus, and that is that salvation is not found in wealth. Now, probably nobody would come right out and say this. Well, I think by wealth I'm saved, okay? 
Nobody would say it out loud. Um, but we find, at least in this culture, and I'll, I'll go on to show you how I think in our culture too, uh, that wealth may create a false sense of security. Uh, particularly in the culture that we're looking at here, um, this wealth is not just an obstacle to his perfection because Jesus sort of challenges him to give it away according to his standard of thinking, uh, but we actually see it as a bit of a veneer, part of his self-righteousness that he brings to Jesus uh, kind of uh, as a way of thinking himself okay. But the cultural mindset at the time is something that I've referred to kind of jokingly before as fat cat theology. Maybe you remember this term. The culture really thought that if one was wealthy, that was the sign of God's acceptance and God's blessing on a person's life. It was, they thought it was sort of an external mark that one really was well, uh, well off with God and in God's good graces. And, um, and today, we call this the prosperity gospel. And it is alive and well. I'll teach you all about it for thirty nine ninety five. Right? <laughs> That's what it sounds like. Okay. Uh, but to the disciples and all of the other onlookers, this man's wealth to them was sort of a cultural symbol of God's acceptance and God's blessing. And so they themselves really had bought into this prosperity gospel. And so the point here is not, as it sometimes has been mistakenly taught, the point here is not that it's wrong to be wealthy. The point is not that all Christians should be poor. The point is not that all material goods should be renounced. But rather, if wealth is your security, if you take it as a marker of God's blessing on your life and therefore your good standing with him, then you had better get rid of it quickly because it is an illusion and a false security of yours. That's what we're exposed with here. Either change your thinking or empty your portfolio. The Bible does not say that money is the root of all evil. It says, and I'll quote Matthew, or excuse me, 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And so what we find here, I think in reality, is that actually both the wealthy and the poor can fall prey to this prosperity gospel, right? And I would tell you that the poor are some of the saddest people of all who have fallen prey to this because they think that security is found in having these things, and yet they haven't attained them. And so they have multiple layers of sadness and dissolution. The rich young man walks away troubled because he has great wealth. And that's sort of the fairly obvious reaction to what Jesus has exposed in him and in the cultural thinking that somehow wealth was a mark of God's blessing. But I think it's actually the disciples' reaction which is the most instructive for us. They ask the question, who then can be saved? And I tell you what, if you ever want to get really good at learning about Jesus and about his teachings, follow the questions. Follow the questions asked to him. Follow the questions that he himself asks. That's where, the, that's where the weight of the banter really is. But as you can see, they're incredulous. If not this guy, the poster boy for all that is good, young, moral, rich, influential, probably a nice tan, might even hate cats, you know. If not this guy, who then can be saved? 
And so again, what Jesus is doing is he is foiling yet another false gospel. So what we've seen already is it's not through status, either high or low. This was taught to us with the uh, encounter with the children. It's not through status, nor is it through law-keeping or legalism, nor is it through an accumulation of wealth and prosperity that assures one their standing in the kingdom of God. These are all false gospels. Jesus teaches us that the way into the kingdom is the renunciation of false gospels, status, legalism, earning, prosperity. And instead, one needs to turn in humble faith to Jesus and follow him. And that is the way one accesses the kingdom of God. And so the upshot to Jesus' sort of corrective teaching here is this, that only those who know they need Jesus and follow him will enter the kingdom. In other words, the kingdom of God is not withheld because of one's low status. That was the lesson of the children. The kingdom of God is not earned by legalism. The kingdom of God is not assured by one's wealth. The kingdom of God is available to those who would humble themselves like children, those who would not trust in their wealth or their statue or their good deeds, and rather they would know in the end that they need Jesus and they would follow him. A good friend of mine is... Uh, said many times, and I love, I love to hear him say this, that Jesus can make any man good. And uh, I would add a corollary to that, which is, but only Jesus can make any man good. And that's the punch of this passage here. Now, Jesus really gives us sort of a kicker right at the end to make sure that we've got his point. And uh, parables are always good kickers. And so that's the last piece that we get to just make sure that we Uh, We get the lesson here. So look with me at Matthew 20, verse 1. And uh, this is sort of his exclamation point on his teaching. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, You also go work in my vineyard, and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, Why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired, going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. Okay, denarius is a day's wages. Those who worked for an hour got a day's wages, just to make that clear. So when those, uh, when those came who were first hired, they expected to receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So, 
The last will be first, and the first will be last. The point here is quite simply this, that anyone who thinks the kingdom is earned is mistaken. And that is like the drop kick that Jesus gives to the end of his message here. Uh, and the economy of this parable is unsettling, isn't it? If this happened in today's day and age, there would be some kind of collective bargaining, you know, whatever. There would be a brouhaha. Uh, it is meant, this parable is meant to foil our conventions, our economy, our sense of receiving what you've earned. And it does that, doesn't it? Because we read this and we go, that's not right. And my response to that is, thank God that he doesn't do what is right according to our standards. He exposes our hidden thoughts, even though the Christian talks about the grace of God in the reality of things is, in our heart of hearts, we still think we earn something. Our very uneasiness with this parable shows that. We're conflicted even in our own thinking. Yes, we want the grace of God, but I got here first. Right? That's, that's the sneaky second thought that's in most of our lives here. And so the point of the parable is to shout at us that what is given is given by grace and not by merit. Those who gain access to the kingdom of God are precisely those who know they don't deserve it. And those who think they have earned it or deserve it or that God is quite lucky to have me they show that they're far away and may in fact have missed it. So let me be explicit. Let me be repetitive for us. The kingdom of God is not a credit-based system. What Jesus teaches is the kingdom will not be populated by the wealthy because of their wealth. Nor will it be populated by the social elites because of their status. Nor will it be earned by the doing of good deeds and the keeping of laws nor will it be awarded for those who were early on the scene. The wealthy, the social elites, the hardworking, the early adopters, these all represent the economy of our world, but not the economy of God's kingdom. Rather, the kingdom is available by the grace and the mercy of God, and it is accessed by repentance and faith, evidenced by those who follow Jesus. And so what we find here is this, Four false gospels foiled by Jesus and the only true gospel proclaimed. And a great succinct way of hearing it is this, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And that is the message of these three vignettes together. Would you pray with me? Father, we are quick to acknowledge your grace, to mention it, to sing about it, to claim it. And yet, I think probably every person know, here knows that in the deep recesses of their heart and mind, there, are, there is this steady temptation to fall back to earning and legalism or some other way of propping ourselves up and thinking ourselves worthy or deserving. And so, Lord, we take the... Uh, we take the sucker punch to the gut here and we allow it to hit our hearts to remind us we bring nothing 
to the kingdom of God. We are broken, we are empty, we are sinners through and through. Our hearts were wrecked, we are depraved. We would not seek you, we would not choose you if you did not come looking to rescue us. But you have. And so we rejoice that we who were late coming to the party were given the full inheritance as those who came early. We rejoice in the grace that we have received. We know, Father, that we need Jesus. And we thank you for him. We pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen.